1: Against of the crowd on its feet, Allen for the win! Welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast.
0: What up, what up? Welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast. My name is Nick Ingval, and today, I'm excited. I'm excited for today. Today we have something a little bit different for you. As you might know, we have an amazing community of sneaker enthusiasts that hang out in our Sneaker History Discord on a daily basis. While sneakers are the connection point that brought us all together, we've all discovered countless shared passions that we share with other people in the community. This week, we launched the first of a handful of new podcasts that will be coming directly from our community. We'll get into the details for those podcasts in a future episode, but I am super excited to share the Exhaust Notes podcast with everyone today. It's a show about racing, cars, racing cars, automotive-related topics, and honestly, just another passion that I'm super excited about. If you're a fan of Formula One or Formula Drift, or maybe you hit up Cars and Coffee, or maybe you're just a weirdo like me that enjoys the smell of gasoline, I think you'll enjoy this one. If you do, add Exhaust Notes to your subscribe list so you'll be updated when we drop future episodes. As always, thank you for supporting Sneaker History, and don't forget to tell someone you like their kicks today. Please enjoy the first episode of our new podcast, Exhaust Notes. Welcome to the Exhaust Notes podcast. My name is Nick Ingvall, and I am one of your hosts for today's episode. If you're a fan of cars, racing, racing cars, just curious about all things automotive, or maybe you're one of those weirdos like me that likes the smell of gasoline, you're in the right place. Let's get into today's show.
1: Exhaust Notes Podcast. Lights out, everybody. It's the Exhaust Notes Podcast. I've got my head driver, Nick Engvall. I've got my chief mechanic, Todd Yates, and I'm the plucky young upstart wrote Malthotra. This is an extension of the Sneaker History Podcast, and it's just more, if anything, a midlife crisis, if we're being honest with ourselves. I kid, I kid, but really what I've got today is two of the most knowledgeable race fans that I know, Nick and Todd. How are you gentlemen today? How's everything in your world, Todd? Very good. Very good. Happy to be here. Excellent. And I believe this is a debut for you. So we're looking to see some sort of pull performance from you because you are our dirty little secret when it comes to this new podcast. So thank you for joining. And then as always, the Senna, the pros, the Hamilton, the Schumacher, even Nick Engvall, what's going on? What's up, man? That's so much
0: pressure. I, I don't even I don't even know if I can handle. That's like such a crazy. Yeah.
1: But yeah, I'm, I'm I, it's a crazy intro, but we're gonna get you there because that's what I have to do as your wingman, if you will, or your secondary driver. I'm basically gonna tie up the midfield, so then you have a clear path to that checkered flag. But we really wanted to kind of start this podcast because there's enough of a notable presence not only in the sneaker history Discord, cheap plug, but just pop culture right now about Formula One. So what f- we figured, why not take two established presidents, one person that's really enthusiastic about it, but doesn't understand the technical nuance. And just get a good starter conversation going, because at the end of the day, we've all been there where we want to check out this cool new thing, but we don't know where to go. So we're hoping we can be that for formula one for all 15 of you that are still listening after that long rambly intro. But Nick, do you want to start us off? Yeah, man.
0: So uh, basically, uh, you know, I I was trying to think back of to when, when I first got introduced to formula one. Um, and I don't know the exact era, but you know, Probably early to mid nineties. Uh, I don't know who, but somebody bought me a Hugo boss. Uh, I think it was probably my dad or my grandparents, but like a Hugo boss, remote controlled, you know, formula one car, a terrible, you know, it was one of those like true classic, uh, remote control cars where you, you went forward and you reversed in a circle, (laughs) you know? So like you, that was the only real, like, you know, turning you did. But, uh that was kind of what got me interested in it. And, you know, I was already kind of interested in cars, but with formula one, it just became like something that I loosely paid attention to throughout the Senna era and you, you know, kind of, uh, got a little bit heavier into it in the late nineties, early two thousands with like bar Honda and those types of teams, um, you know, the Benson hedges, uh, teams that were Mugen powered from, from my Honda days, but. I guess it's still my Honda days now because I haven't given up on all the Honda stuff, but that's, that's kind of my, uh, you know, stepping into formula one as a, as a, as a fan, the last few years obviously have been, you know, exponential. So, um, my girlfriend cam has, you know, kind of invested her time into watching the Netflix, you know, drive to survive series with me and has her, has her favorites. And it's the first time that, Formula one kind of became something that other people were interested in that weren't necessarily like, you know, the, the cars and coffee friends of mine that I would be seeing on the weekends necessarily, but just your average everyday people, because it introduced to, it was, it's being introduced to America kind of in a, in a, in a new, you know, with social media, Netflix, all of the above kind of way. So I just thought it would be cool to talk about this kind of stuff with you guys and kind of give people some insight as to like how. You know, what formula one is a grandiose overview, but like also what, you know, different walks of life find interesting about it. And you guys obviously being kind of the first two people that came to mind just because we've been doing this fantasy league and and having some fun with that too. So another way for us to kind of keep our, our finger on the pulse of the races and stuff.
1: Excellent. So, Todd, how about you? Like, what drove you? <laughs> sorry, the first of many bad raising funds. Uh, what drove you to the sport and why do you maintain with it? Because I know we so often get caught up in this new flashy thing. And then after a while, they're like, let me just go back to the comfort food that is American sports. But what about Formula One made it so enticing?
2: Yeah. So kind of similar to Nick's answer. I grew up loving cars, everything automotive. Uh, my dad was <clears throat> excuse me. My dad was into cars. And uh, but it's weirdly enough, my mom, who in a roundabout way, got me into Formula One. Um, So I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and some uh, pretty famous racing family. The Unser family is from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I remember vividly being at a restaurant during the Indy 500. I think it was. Ninety two or ninety four. I know that he won both of those years, Al Unser Jr., Um, but she wouldn't leave this restaurant. We'd already eaten our meal and everything and been there a while. And and she would not leave the restaurant until the the race was over. So we stayed well past our welcome. Uh, but fast forward, uh, a few years kind of into high school for me. Uh, I kind of stumbled upon formula one. Well, I, I watched my first races, uh, I think it was on like wide, wide world of sports that same year. I think it was 94. And that was unfortunately the year that Santa died and Schumacher joined. And so that piqued my interest, but it was, wasn't, I didn't start watching more steadily until kind of the late nineties, hacking in Villeneuve, those kind of drivers. And then, uh, kind of stepped away from it, my late teens, twenties, and then probably when Danny Rick joined, uh, the pot. He just is the a character that I connected with. He was just weird and goofy and fun-loving, and that's when I really started to to nerd out and just have been kind of following him as a driver ever since. And and I think we're blessed now, as as Kardashian-like as it is, to have uh, the Drive to Survive series because even like Nick mentioned, like I loosely got my wife interested into she'll listen to me at least talk about the races now. So yeah, that's that's me.
1: That's awesome. No, I mean, I think to continue my origin story as well, same thing as you guys, I had prominent family members that were essential in my development growing up. So when I was raised in India, my uncle and probably the family member closest to me in age decided that his nephew should be able to say the ABCs. And in this sense, the ABCs meant having cars or models for every letter. So I grew up with A is for Aston Martin, B is for Bentley. And as I kind of grew older, I was like, man, cars aren't great, other than the fact that I can take a Hot hot Wheels and just kind of spin it. And that was basically a fidget spinner for your boy when he was three. But one thing that was constant was my uncle's love of Michael Schumacher, or Shumi, who kind of is now getting a proper reintroduction because i think netflix is probably as big of a catalyst to now getting me into it as well because like you both had mentioned formula one drive to survive and now we've got the schumacher documentary which looks intense and incredible and all those great things but to me it was the familiarity of something that i once thought foreign so as for watching the drive to survive and you have that likable protagonist in danny rick and he is the perfect entry point to get to know some of the other drivers that you are like okay max Verstappen, really good quasi-Nazi looking, but hey, I'm here for it because he seems to be really good. Hopefully he's not anti-Semitic and this is where I'm going to get kicked off the show. But anyway, I digress. But then also getting to know the Lewis Hamilton's of the world and then getting to know the fringe characters. So for me, I just was drawn to Esteban Ocon, who's essentially a midfield driver, but something about his origin story where one of the prior misconceptions that I had about the sport was everybody was from the rich elite of Europe. And this was one person like Lewis who kind of had to bring himself up from the bootstraps and kind of rely on his family, selling everything, including their own home, just to fund this kid's racing hobby slash passion and now profession. So that's what got to me. was once again, because this is sports and we're living in that era where narrative drives everything. I was able to see patterns that I see in American fandom that I have. And I'm like, Oh, this player reminds me of this team in American sports. I have this feeling towards him. And when you put it on that fundamental level, To me, I think that's what the secret sauce is. And I think that's why we're seeing all these people gravitate to it. It was kind of sad because I got caught up last two seasons and then I was ready for the 2020 season. And unfortunately COVID hit. And that to me is probably one of the most interesting things because I thought that was going to be a death knell because for all the goodwill and the publicity that drive to survive was giving formula one, I was like, they're not going to last because this happened. But lo and behold, If anything, it's caused people to double down. So that's, I'm one of those new people that just fell in love with the sport because there's a reality TV show component to it. Yeah.
0: It's really interesting to think about how it has survived and progressed past COVID, right? I mean, obviously COVID still, you know, wreaking havoc on the world, but as far as formula one happened to shut down races, you know, everywhere essentially and stick to one track for a continued, continued, you know, amount of time. That takes away from a lot of the the interesting elements of what it is, right? If it's the same track all the time, you know, it it's not as challenging for the drivers. It's not as competitive most of the time. And I, I think, you know, part of what drew me into Formula One originally was, you know, getting to see all these other places, right? Like I've had, uh, you know, I've had a Monaco poster in my house for. 20 something years, like a giant, like, you know, uh, forget the artist name, but, uh, that whole. Elusiveness of what that race was, right. Just was like, wow, there's just so many places that I want to go see in my lifetime. And yet, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 times a year. These are places where there's formula one races. So, uh, it just seemed like this would be like the perfect you know, thing for me to be interested in as somebody who wanted to travel more and see, you know, what else is out there besides what we're kind of, you know, fed in America, unfortunately. But I think too, like the other, the other part of the getting through COVID, um, you know, it it was really, it felt really, uh, it felt, it felt like a moment of unity for the sport of Formula One to get through it, as opposed to some of the other sports where you had, you know, just, you know, so much back and forth and so much politicizing of everything and every moment, it really felt like, Hey, we want a race and we're going to make this happen for the fans. And I just respected that so much, even though it wasn't, you know, to the level that formula one is uh, on a regular basis, it was, it was impressive to see the organization and the people and the community around it, you know, kind of step up and say, no, this is going to continue on with the energy that we had you know, had built in the last three, four years, um, you know, through, you know, the drive to survive stuff. So I think that's the one thing that's always been missing from formula one is the American aspect of it. You know, like we've never really had America's never really embraced formula one as a pinnacle piece of motorsport. In my opinion, it's always been a pinnacle piece of motorsport for the people that are interested in motorsports, but generally speaking, Everyone in America is going to see the Indy 500, you know, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but like the Indy 500, you know, is 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 incredible, right? Like everyone that is into cars and into racing, you know, that's a moment that I think everybody kind of stops and pauses for, the same way that football fans, you know, would for the Super Bowl and baseball fans would for the World Series. But Formula One itself never had; there was never enough. Of it here, right? It was always like just out of reach, just kind of n- never made an impact through social circles, through, you know, even social media, right? Like social media for Formula One took way longer to kind of get on board compared to sports like basketball, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point, because I always kind of come back to this one. Why I think basketball and soccer do really well is it's, these are the only two sports there isn't any sort of facial covering. So we can truly see the theater aspect of the sport as well as the sport itself. Formula One is probably as tricky of anything in terms of you can't even read the body language because you've got a car shielding it. So you really have to look at the fact that how they drive is essentially a personification of who they are. And I know that was one thing for me kind of getting into the sport whenever I would go frequent message boards or listen to different podcasts, my number one question was, I was almost approaching this from a video game stage of like, okay, if I see Fernando Alonso's driver profile in a PlayStation 4 game, like there are five categories, speed, aggression, tenacity, or technical prowess, where are they in a scale from one to five? So then I can at least understand, okay, this is a very aggressive driver, but he has no race pace. Or this person is super fast, but he's also super crashy. So, Todd, like, walk me through how you were able to kind of understand the different nuances between different drivers. Because to the untrained eye, it just looks like 20 dudes driving a track really fast, and I can't figure out what's going on.
2: That's that's a really good question. You know, it's, it, it's taken me probably the last... 20 years to really be able to spot the things that the announcers are talking about, how the car turns in, you know, the, 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 the setup that they're going with that weekend. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned video games. I have been sim racing for a long time, which is, I, you know, play the formula one game among others. But when I I feel like that's also a really good entry point for, uh, for people casually, like we all remember when like Gran Turismo came out and games like that or, or other earlier racing games, like even going back to like F-Zero, like like if you could understand what they're doing from a like a technical perspective, like driving a sim game, I, I've tried to introduce my family to it and they're just like, oh, this is easy. It's video games. And then they drive immediately into a wall. We we even even myself and you guys as, as you know knowledgeable fans of F-1 don't really understand how hard it is so it it really does take some studying but i think like we've been saying the the really good entry point is kind of the tr- drama size, uh personalities that we get with formula one and and the the wealth of coverage that we have beyond even the netflix thing there's so much content on youtube and youtube personalities that are centered around formula one that really are great in- entry points
1: No, I was going to say this. What Another thing that's been really helpful, and as we're kind of going through this episode, I think we'll all share kind of different entry points. There's a web series on YouTube called, uh, I think, Grill the Grid, where every so often, I think once a month, they will ask all 20 drivers on the grid a certain question. And to Todd's point, it really, tell me how you are as a person without telling me how you are as a person. And the example I will use is there was a question where each driver had to go backwards in time and list the current driver. And so you start seeing people that are students of the game and then people that are just there because maybe their dad is a very ominous figure that can write a really big check. And it was one of those things where I've kind of let my allegiances be known. I really like Ocon for whatever reason. But watching that and watching Sebastian Vettel just brush off winner after winner after winner, until the actual first start year was impressive. And I'm like, you know what? I am going to be a fan of this guy. And because to me, he almost seems like the Tim Duncan of Formula One, where he's just this kind of boring dude who goes to the race, not on a a fancy flashy car, but his bicycle. And he's staying afterwards to pick up the trash from all the fans that are there. And it's that type of connection that once again, I'm like, okay, this is helping me color in the lines a little because I still – it will take me the aforementioned 20 years to really understand the tactical nuance of an undercut versus an overcut or what's happening if a pit stop has gone right or more importantly what's happening if it's gone wrong. But we'll use this as an entry point Nick. So walk us through how Formula 1 is set up today. And if you think there's anything else from previous eras that might help define the sport for a new listener like myself, go for it. But
0: Yeah, so you have Essentially, you know, 10 teams with two drivers per team. Um, those teams could be, uh, y- you know, you can have a, a red bull, which is, you know, kind of a top tier team up there with the Mercedes team. Um, then you have kind of their secondary team, which now is called alpha Tori, which is still, you know, very much like funded by Red Bull and, you know, a part of that world. They, you know, this season, as we're recording this, they're using Honda engines. Um, The relationships exist for both teams. Then you also have a situation where, you know, the Mercedes team, which, you know, this year is Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Botas, which they provide, Mercedes provides engines for the McLaren team. So like you have, you know, kind of, these layers to how everyone's connected through the sport, you know, and then you have kind of Ferrari who is, you know, somehow still comes across as like, we are the best, regardless of whether we win or not, you know, kind of not in an arrogant way through their people on the track, but, or even in the pits. Right. But just the, the, the like overall like energy of, you know, Enzo Ferrari kind of just seeps through the team still to this day. And even as just like not a Ferrari fan, I still am like, wow, it's Ferrari. You know, like there's still an element of like, this is like some sort of deity on the racetrack. Right. Um, And I think, I think, you know, I don't remember statistically, but like, I'm pretty sure Ferrari has won, you know, exponentially more than, than most, teams throughout the years formula one's been around since i want to say 1956 1960,
2: 56 i think yeah
0: yeah, something like that so um and you know if if there were other ways to get you interested in racing as a as a general subject you know i think there's plenty of films out there that we can get into probably on a, a future episode but just ford versus ferrari will give you a good idea of the kind of aura of what Ferrari is out there in the world. Um, And it's not good or bad in my opinion. It just, it is what it is kind of in formula one. But I also think that, you know, you have kind of teams like Alfa Romeo. We have an American team right now, Haas, which is, you know, both those teams are are kind of struggling to keep up the pace with the rest of, of formula one, but it's kind of important for people that are new to formula one to understand like. When we say that a, a car is not keeping pace, that's in races only, right? Like that is like when it comes to qualifying, these cars are within a second or two up and down the grid, twenty cars. Sometimes even tenths of a second, hundredths of a second, thousandths of a second separates literally the top ten cars, right? Um so I think that the the sport itself is it provides a lot of interesting ways for you to become a fan. And I was thinking about this before we started recording, um, throughout today. It's almost like you could become a fan of, of the individual drivers. That's now a, an opportunity. You get to see them on social media. Uh, if, if you, if you want just fun, like to Todd's point, Daniel Ricardo is incredibly entertaining as a human being. Uh, if you want to see just like two happy kids, like te- it's almost like, you know, teenage boys playing, you know, in the court, uh, down the street from their house, look at like the AlphaTauri team with Pierre Gasly and Yuki Sonoda. These guys are like genuinely seem like they're brothers from another mother hanging out all the time after races and, you know, in between and travel and all this stuff. And it just seems like they are like, I, I guess the best way to, to, you know, interpret that they seem like what I wanted to do as like the aspiring skateboarder, you know, let's just get in a van and drive around the world skateboarding. They're basically doing that in the in like a grandiose scale with Formula One. In
1: in private suits. jets. <laughs>
0: yeah, <in laughs> private jets, yeah. Um, but I do think that like the other interesting aspects of of people getting interested, you know, there's there's like the, the individuals, there's obviously the teams. Some teams are, you know, uh a, you know, a massive, uh, automotive brand like Mercedes or Renault or Alfa Romeo or any of these teams that have, you know, a, a big, massive brand that you're already familiar with as, as a consumer, right. For the most part, or at least, you know, the name, right. Um, then there's kind of like the, the team level, right? Because they're competing on, you know, as teams. So even though. You, everybody's out there for themselves, you're also competing for your team because there's manufacturer championship championship, which, you know, when you have guys that are really competitive, that throws another wrench into how they approach the race, how their teams approach the race, how their race is managed by, you know, the pit crews and the, and the, you know, team principals and all that stuff. So, um, and then I also think that there's just like a, there's, you know, then there's the kind of, uh, you know, like where, like the, the origins of all these guys, right? Like you might only root for a British racer because your family's from London or something like that. Or, you know, you might find somebody that's, you know, from your hometown. And next thing you know, you're a fan of that team for years to come. And I think that's, that's kind of works across racing as a whole. Um, But Formula One is really, uh, gives you all of those aspects. And I think the final way that you can kind of look at it is like, You know, like, these are just beautiful, incredibly well-engineered machines that are as much art as they are some performance vehicle, right? So, like, I definitely have friends that just look at a car and, like, that's the team that I love this year because that car is so good. And I think that's a a good way to go, too, because, you know, like, some of these paint schemes, liveries in, in the racing world are absolutely phenomenal. Like, they just resonate with people. And I think you see that as, as the seasons go by where there's slight changes and, and change, you know, maybe, maybe the drivers change a helmet to, you know, tell another story and those layers kind of just give you, you know, like I could say that, you know, Lando Norris is my favorite driver right now, but I also will root for 10 other people on the grid because of all these various things. And I think that is what makes it so exciting for me to see more people getting into it because there's other stories that I might not be able to see or consume or, you know, catch on YouTube or know, because somebody else has that connection to it. And then it gets more personal for you. The more friends you have, that are into sports. Exactly.
1: And I was going to use that opportunity to have Todd kind of explain the format of the races, because Nick, you did a tremendous job talking to us about the drivers and the machinery, but Todd, could you walk us through what we would want to get ourselves into if we decide, Hey. Next week, there's a race, and I think there's some events Friday, and there might be some on Saturday. Walk me through that because I think that's probably another good way for people to realize how much of a commitment can I give this new sport.
2: Oh yeah, you can get real nerdy, which I'm about to do. So generally, uh, Wednesdays, the te- well teams show up on Tuesdays. Uh, you know, set up. Uh, you know, it's like a thousand moving pieces. Like Nick, Nick mentioned, these these. Some of these teams are conglomerates like Mercedes, and they have 300 people traveling. So the fact that they can get them to 20 places around the world uh, within a week of each other sometimes is just staggering. But teams will show up on uh, Tuesdays. Generally, we'll have you know track walk and preparations on Wednesday. Which, if you follow you know any social media, as you can see bits and pieces of that of the teams. Then. Uh, uh, Thursdays is usually media day, so they'll have interviews, they'll have press conferences, um, again, more content in all the social media spaces. And then Friday will be usually and I'm talking it's talking a typical weekend. They've started to change it up a little bit this year, but uh, usually Friday they'll have uh, two practice sessions that consist of an hour. Now, they used to be an hour and a half and there was kind of a lot of dead air that the commentators would have to fill. So it's a little bit more action-packed and exciting uh this year so it's two one-hour sessions of them doing going through you know race pace simulation qualifying simulation different uh tire compounds that they use within the races they'll test all that stuff out then on saturday they'll have uh practice three in the morning and then saturday afternoon they'll have qualifying which consists of three rounds it's all 20 cars on track the top 15 advance to the next round That's Q2. And then on to Q3 with the last 10 cars. That's the final shootout for the pole position or fastest lap of that day. And then they line up in order of time. Again, Nick mentioned earlier that it's in qualifying form. The top seven can be within three tenths of a second of each other, which is like faster than an eye blink usually. And uh, then on Sunday, we'll have the Grand Prix, which is... Thanks to us being in the U.S., usually about five or six o'clock in the morning. So if you're trying to get into Formula One, you can become an early bird or just watch it later like most of, most people do. I'm a psychopath and I got up at 4.30 this morning to watch the race. So, um, yeah, and then on to the next one, F- times 23.
1: right And I think that is probably as brilliant of a summary as I've heard about it because, yeah, uh, one other reason why the West Coast is the best coast is clearly we all want to be that early bird that gets the worm, and in this case the worm is hot machinery running all over the world. One other thing that I was kind of unfamiliar with until I started watching the races as well as the show is the concept of the primary and the secondary driver. So both Nick and Todd had mentioned that we have 10 teams. Each team has two drivers. Now, for the most part, Each team has a number one driver and a number two driver. And the thought is your number one driver is your shining star and your number two is some sort of combination of a role player slash sacrificial lamb. But then you get into the nuances of the personalities and you realize that while you may be competing with everybody on the grid, your number one competitor is your teammate because they're the only one that in theory has the same equal machinery as you. So that's when you start seeing, okay, who truly is the cock of the walk for a team and who's just there because, hey, we needed an extra body to fill because as we were kind of alluding to, there are some teams, especially on the lower end of the grid that it feels that they are just there as exercises and cannon fodder or moving racing cones. But that's another thing for another day. I would just kind of ask you guys to walk me through what your perceptions are of that number one versus number two thing, because if you don't know any better, it gets jarring. So what was something that is about the sport that you guys were caught unaware of until you started watching the sport? And I'll start off with you, Todd, because I think I've started with Nick the last couple of topics.
2: (laughs) Sure. Put me on the spot while I'm trying to think of something. Um, You know, I think I, with, with the exception of probably the last seven or so years, um, I didn't realize how technical it was, and uh, you know, you just mentioned that the, there's a, a number one and a number two driver, but you can see that the 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 splits uh, on between teammates it can be can be massive, but it's they're trying to extract with science essentially magic witchcraft whatever it is that extra 10th and uh you know the the budgets that they put into this thing where they'll put you know a million dollars into just break duct r d to get that extra 10th next to against their competitors uh you know i i didn't realize that when i was growing up watching it it was just like they all kind of look the same with the exception of the paint scheme for the most part and the driver really makes a difference. But no, it's, it's really, truly a team sport, even though there's only two people per team out there on the track competing. There's hundreds and hundreds of people back at the factories and in the pits that really can make the difference.
0: Excellent. Nick, how about you? I think that's a good point because you, you really think of it as, as an individual sport because it's one driver in one car, right? But, you know, a pit stop, which, you know, is 10 to 12 people, not to mention the engineers deciding when and where these happen during the races can literally be the difference between a winning team and a losing team on a regular basis. You know, it's, it's very much, you are, you're out there by yourself, but you are dependent on all of those people to be competing and and performing at the level of you know the top 20 best drivers in the world if you're really being honest about it right like these guys are incredibly talented and you know i think even just thinking about the the you know the g forces that they're feeling the, the the physical exertion that they have to you know put out in order to get through a race is just absolutely mind boggling for you know, as you dive into becoming a fan, you start to learn these nuances and these things that just don't appear without really becoming a fan and, and kind of learning about it. I think in, in terms of the, the drivers, the teams, you know, the, the A and B of a team, right, the top driver and the secondary driver, you know, a lot of the teams would, you know, shy away from even acknowledging that in years past. And I think in more recent years, you're seeing like a more clear cut, Hey, you know, this is our number one guy. And, you know, unfortunately, whoever's, whoever second, you know, hopefully you push him to be better and maybe someday you'll be better than him on the track. But generally speaking, it's, it's like pretty clear cut with most of the teams over the past few years. Um, but I think that, you know, the interesting thing about that is you get into the personalities of these, of these athletes and, that can throw a wrench into anything you thought existed in terms of hierarchy within the team. Right. Uh, you know, as I said, being like one of the top 20 drivers in the world, you're talking about also potentially the biggest 20 egos in the world. Right. So, you know, we have kind of all of these different storylines that, that play out under, you know, you know, in the garages, right. Throughout the week, uh, prepping throughout the interviews. Um, you know, there's strategy even down to, you know, what's said because all of the teams can hear the radios from the other teams. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of strategy that goes into that. There's a lot of, you know, making everybody guess what you're actually meaning when you say something. So I think the, the, the the personalities really just start to, they start to pull you in, in in so many ways that you just could never imagine. And, you know, yeah, Netflix does that, but, you know, now you can see it everywhere, right? Like, like I said about the Alpha Tore guys, right? Those guys, I mean, social media has been just brilliant with them, right? Like, just, it's like, you are not my favorite team, but I want to buy a hoodie because you guys are such cornballs and having so much fun out there. Like, that's, that's like so. You know, to me, that's like, like what's come of all of this stuff and what I really enjoy about that, those dynamics and, and to, to even think about like, yeah, we're, we're, you know, we're the two best friends anyone could ever have. And then we get in the car and we'll run each other off the road and potentially put each other in crazy danger, you know?
1: And if we're in Monaco, there's going to be boats and hoes because there is very much a (laughs) stepbrothers vibe to the bromance between Pierre Gasly and one Yuki Sonoda. And I think to the point that Todd also made, when you look at the staff and the thing that gravitates in my mind in terms of making a comparison in the American sports sense is, I hate this term when I watch football, but that concept of skill players, right? Your receivers, your quarterbacks, your running backs, and then the offensive line, the unsung heroes of the team are the nameless, faceless mob that just push forward and try to contain pressure. And that's what that support staff is for a lot of us, because a pit stop isn't important until it's important and you lose the race. So I definitely get that component of it. One thing I'll use this opportunity as well is to kind of outline how do you win in Formula One. So there was allusions to it made by both of my brilliant co-hosts, but there are essentially two titles for every Formula One season. There's the drivers and then there's the constructors. And we can use a made-up race in this case. But let's say we have a top three of Lewis, Max, and Danny Rick. Lewis wins 25 points. I believe Max in this hypothetical wins 20, and Danny Rick wins 15. And please correct me if I'm wrong on those point totals, guys. 18, I think. 18? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You get some sort of points if you're in the top ten. And those points count towards the two races that I'd mentioned. You have the driver's race where we literally see, okay, who's the driver that's accumulated the most points? Because in theory, they're the ones that have had the most top 10 finishes or the most podium finishes in the top three. And then similarly, you're working together in terms of your teammate and trying to make sure you win the constructor's title. And that is that race team that has those two drivers that's accumulated the most points, same criteria. So that's something that's really been interesting to watch because I believe the last seven years we've seen Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes win with the exception of one year, because I think that was the Rosenberg year, correct? Rossberg And so that's another thing. Yeah. That was go it. Go for it, please. 20, 2014 or
2: 2016.
1: Nico rossberg Yep. See, this is why, see, I'm all ambition and pluck and Todd is efficiency and cold calculations. And I love it. So what we're talking about now is the fact that you have these two competitions And what was interesting to me was when I go through the history of the sport, it's very similar to, let's say, any dynasty in any sport, where Formula One seems to have a huge block in terms of one team will win, let's say, six out of seven years. And then something happens, whether it's a rule shift, and we'll see a new car, and then we'll see a new winner that seems to dominate that era. So Nick, walk us through what these rule shifts are, because I believe we've got one coming up in 2022
0: yeah I mean the car itself will will change drastically in 2022 right You'll have you know I guess bigger wheels so like th- this year's cars and and primarily for the past you know couple of decades, the wheels are really tiny. the tires are massive and sticky as hell, um, which I think is is uh the, the change to a bigger wheel and a slimmer tire, a, a shorter tire you know in, in height is it's obviously motivated to you know be more like industry standards for cars that we actually drive on the streets um a lot of racing that i've been into leman racing you know america leman back in the day very much like tried to kind of push the green energy hybrid you know uh drivetrain all of the things that were there were roughly translated from street cars in some way shape or form or or vice versa right it all kind of funnels back down into street cars with formula one the obvious thing that never did was the wheels it was like they were like this kind of one-off you know 12 inch or whatever yeah 12 inch, 13 12 inch wheel. i think with 13 inch wheel with you know like a massively fat tire and it's great because it you know it's speed and all of you know, the experience is great, but like, it's not something that the average consumer can say, Oh, oh, that's kind of cool. Cause it's connected here. Right. Um, and you know, maybe that's not important to formula one, but I, or to, you know, the average person, but to me as somebody who's watched racing for a long time, that was something that I always kind of was, it was odd. Um, so next year will be an interesting kind of redesign of the car, almost like resetting, um, you know, the kind of approach for all of these teams right i forget some of the other regulations that are going to change but maybe todd you, you could talk about some of that. yeah kind of
2: stuff. so uh it, it's funny that you mentioned like the domination because we've had that a lot in the past 20 years right it was ferrari dominating there was a odd mclaren uh championship in there and then uh went to red bull with seb for four years and then we've had lewis for the last seven or well we had a Rosberg in there, but Mercedes has won the last seven. Anyway, uh, but the the biggest complaint now is that the, the cars can't follow each other close enough, right? You have to be within one second of each other to use the DRS or drag reduction system, which is like a little flap that opens on the back of the car wing that gives you a little extra speed down the straights so that lets you get close to the car in front. But as soon as you come to a turn, the dirty air from the that the car's moving out of its way with its aerodynamics, the car behind is severely affected and loses a bunch of grip. So, the regulations have been changed in a way, in addition to the tires, they're going away from the super complex outer aerodynamic pieces, the barge boards, all the little, if you look at a current F1 car close, there's all kinds of little bits and stuff sticking out everywhere that send the air in a million directions to keep the car planted. And they've gone to more of a ground effect car, first popularized popularized in the 70s and 80s, uh, that kind of sucks the air under the car, which thereby sucks the car into the ground, but doesn't cause as much of a wake in the air to the cars behind, so they can follow closer and hopefully provide closer racing. And there will still be top teams and bottom teams, but maybe they'll just all be a little bit closer together.
1: No, and I think that's all we want, so to speak, as neutral fans, is we just want a great deal of parity because anybody should be able to set foot in a car and win on their day. And it doesn't seem like that happens that frequently in Formula One, but I do think we've seen instances, especially in this year, where we've had some pretty unlikely winners. And I think I read somewhere that almost half of the active grid has won a race, and that seems to be kind of a startling stat because – this sport seems to be very top heavy in a lot of different ways. But that being said, I think we are about to wrap up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each one of my co-hosts, give me one other piece of pop culture that helped you appreciate formula one. And I know Nick had mentioned that we'll do probably a movies episode later down the line and we can go into those movies that made us kind of fall in love with the sport again. But Give me something, whether it's a TV show like Talladega night or sorry, a movie like Talladega nights or rush or a book, what was something that allowed you to fall even more in love with the sport?
0: I mean, I think for me, you know, probably just being, I, I would say Senna the movie, um, you know, being a fan, being that he was, you know, you know, connected to Honda and, and Acura and you know, so many different ways throughout my kind of growing up. Um, He was just somebody that I always kind of paid attention to. I would say he was like the first kind of superstar in, you know, that I actually knew of in, in formula one, right? Like I learned other stories, but he was the one that I remember seeing in the newspaper, uh, you know, kind of things and dating myself there. But watching that film gives you a kind of a glimpse into the challenges, the incredible, you know, uh, mental effort that goes into these races for these guys. Um, You know, the skill that you have to have, the kind of the arrogance that you have to have too. Um, And also kind of keeps you grounded in reality, you know, like he unfortunately passed away on the racetrack. And that's something that I think, you know, it's, there's not too many sports that you're risking your life every time you go out to participate. And so, so, you know, it keeps them, it keeps all these, you know, beyond superstars very human in a lot of ways by watching that film. And also just kind of introduces you into a, a lot of the backstories that can play out throughout the years, you know, to, to the point of having these dynasties, you know, sometimes, sometimes that dynasty is, the same driver, you know, creating dynasties for two different teams, you know, like just because they don't want to drive with the other driver. So I, I would, I would suggest Senna as like the starting point to, you know, to kind of understand like why I love the sport, but I think there's a lot of other cool stuff out there too.
2: Yeah. So similar answer, different movie to to Nick. The one thing that really, uh, I I guess made me appreciate the, kind of insane nature of the danger of formula one was a movie called just one. Actually, it's just the number one. Um, It's a documentary about the earlier years of, of formula one. And they go pretty far back and show it it, in the seventies or sixties and seventies. It wasn't uncommon for a driver to die maybe every weekend or every other weekend because they were building a car that, is going you know 180 200 miles an hour as light as possible which means there's not a lot of structure around them because you know if you want speed add lightness um and it's just the and it was just kind of a socially acceptable thing to do it's just like oh here's my rival that i'm racing against oh no i'm just kidding he died like that's th- That doesn't really happen in any other sport. Like, obviously, there's grave injuries in all kinds of sports, but it's not just, like, par for the course be like, oh, well, we have 19 drivers for the next race. Oh, no, somebody new joined the sport to fill that guy's spot. That doesn't happen anywhere else except for m- motorsport, and Formula One was, you know, the pinnacle of, of motorsport. So now
1: That reminds me of a very famous quote where – Somebody was talking about if you're a sportsman or an athlete, you die two deaths the day your career is over and then your actual death. Formula One is not that. Formula One, in that sense, uh, they're pedestrian because more often than not, if they have that big crash, that's that can be a very unfortunate thing. Uh, you were saying something, Nick, before I'll make my last pick and we'll it, close the show.
0: Yeah, I was just going to kind of reiterate what Todd was saying because, like, that was a great film. And I think, you know, to to going back to what I was – you know, trying to express a little bit about my, you know, more into sports car racing, maybe we'll get into that in a, in another episode formula ones an open wheel racing series, but the Le Mans series, you know, having those ties into kind of the things that we see that end up trickling down into consumer goods, consumer cars, aftermarket parts, and those kind of things. I think, you know, watching one will allow you to kind of understand And watching one and then seeing what Formula One is now allows you to kind of understand just how much safety, how much, uh, you know, improvements and progress is made in the design of everything automotive because of Formula One, right? Like, you know, we have these cars that have these, you know, kind of crazy halo systems that protect the drivers if the car rolls over. And those types of things aren't, you know, going to be built into your car in the same visible aspect. But in a sense, you know, that's what, you know, the structure of your car is, right? It's designed to do that. So, like, even though it's shrunken down into, you know, a tiny single person cockpit, it's something that translates into, you know, like a, an average consumer good, in my opinion. And I think, you know, when you when you kind of look at the history and and one does a good job of, you know, kind of showcasing that. You get to see so much more and kind of, you know, understanding the aerodynamics. You know, like T- Todd made a great point that that I think as this aerodynamic shift changes, right? Like the streetcars that were like, you know, I, I say this in a very loving, endearing way, but like the gaudy streetcars of the 80s with the crazy body kits and the Gimbala Porsches and all of those, like just over the top designs, those kind of are you know, in a sense, like a trickle down of what Formula One, you know, aerodynamics, you know, teach automotive designers, right? So those are the kind of things that I think a- as you kind of consume these other, you know, movies or, or you know, YouTube videos or whatever, things that you kind of see that all also wrap you further into kind of the admiration for what goes on for all the people that you never actually get to meet on the screen, right? The guys that are building these cars that are putting in the, the, you know, thankless hours that don't get to stand, you know, and, and be kind of regarded as this hero driver.
1: Yeah, I think that is expertly said. And for me as somebody that fell in love with the personality of the drivers, as much as the technical I'll make a suggestion that's more a fictionalized recounting of a very interesting time in Formula One, and that's in the movie Rush, which chronicles the rivalry, if we want to call it that, between James Hunt and Nikki Lauda. And it's set in the 70s, and it's the best and the worst aspect of race car driving in terms of the mentality and that ego because you do see the pomp and glamour and the glitz and everything that you think is what a race car driver is. That movie will make you believe it and lure you in with probably a cheap stereotype but it's so expertly done and just some of the race footage that they've got from the archives and then they've also recreated is just fun and after watching those two movies you will probably feel a little bit sad based on the fact that this is a sport that's unfortunately characterized by a lot of danger so this is a proverbial dessert at the end of that viewing party if you will so that being said we will kind of Go for the checkered flag, if you will. Sorry, I had to search for a pun there. But where can they find you guys? Todd, where are you on the social media? Uh, on Instagram, at T-E-Z-T-E-E-Y-E-Z-Y. Excellent. And Nick, how about yourself? Uh, at Nick Engvall
0: on all the platforms, N-I-C-K-E-N-G-V-A-L-L.
1: Perfect. I'm at m 13 on Instagram, on Twitter at rohezy. Thank you for listening. And, yeah, look forward to the next one. Thanks, y'all. Peace.
2: Peace. Peace. Go watch Strive to Survive. Yes, please do. Hey, hey, Nick here again.
0: Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. Be sure to hop into our Discord to answer this episode's The Last Shot question and get to know our community of sneaker enthusiasts. If you'd like more insights on the trending topics in the sneaker world, I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com newsletter. And last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of some appreciation. Thank you for all the support, and we will catch you on the next episode. Peace.